welcome. You are listening to Grace Capital Church Podcast. I'm excited to preach. This is, this is my third time. This is most I've ever done in a row. Ah, we had our Saturday night service, and it was awesome. We, we had uh, around 60 people, and we worshiped like crazy. And uh, so every first Saturday of the month, moving forward, we're going to have a Saturday night service. Next one is in June. It's already May. Can you believe it? And uh, so we have our service in June. And uh, you're welcome to come. You're welcome to come to both or all three. Why not? Right? Absolutely. So we've been, if you've been with us, we've been working through the book of Revelation. And I have uh, the joy of, of presenting the message to Thyatira. Um, and before I get there, I want to tell, talk to you about what happened yesterday. So uh, last night before yesterday's service, I was, I was uh, in the office sitting at the conference table, and I, I took out my Bible, I took out my notes, had my little highlighter, and uh, I was like ready to, to look over my notes before I would preach, because, you know, it's a good thing to usually do before you preach, to look over your notes. And uh, lo and behold, I had two of our high school worship team members, Noel and Ashley, show up, and they're, they're standing in front of the door, and they're like jumping up and down. They're like, Pastor Greg, Pastor Greg, open the door, open the door. So I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> it looks like I'm not going to have time to prep. So I open the door, and they just like, you know, bull rush me and pass by, and like, you wouldn't believe how awesome this thing was. And they're talking super fast. You know how girls, when they get excited about things, they talk really fast. And if you have two of them that are excited together, they start to talk over each other, and then they start finishing each other's sentences. And so... I could see that both of them, not, they were filled with joy, but they were filled with the Holy Ghost too. It was just like pouring out of them. So what were they excited about? Well, they went to this conference, the Awakening Conference, and they got to worship with 2,000 other young people. And uh, they couldn't say enough about it. They were just, they were raving and saying, oh, this speaker said this. And, and they, took, they all took notes. I mean, how many high school kids take notes during sermons? I was looking at Ashley in between service. She had her journal out with pages and pages of notes. I'm like, oh my goodness, praise God that, that these kids were able to go to this conference and, and have God awaken their heart to him. And the, the serendipity of, of that, of them coming right when I was about to, to prep on my, on my message, you know, my message is about God awakening us, adults. And so as they're talking, I'm just sitting there shaking my head, and God's like, yeah, this is your preparation. You see, what these girls have is what I want the adults to have, right? And I want them to become awakened in the same way that, right? And uh, I'm like, my goodness gracious. And so I've worked with high school students for, uh, and students in general for nearly 15 years in different capacities. Uh, I've worked as a camp director, as a, a high school teacher in a public school, a uh, high school teacher in a private school, a youth pastor, and now I work with our college students here. And uh, in working with students, I, I, I've had countless stories of students becoming awakened, and, and you just see like God doing this work in them, and, and then they get it, and they get filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's so contagious. But I've also had stories of kids falling away. And, 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 and going back into the world 
and being devastated by this world. When I took my last position at a church in Campton, I, uh, I was hired to be a youth pastor and, and worship director, so it was a dual role. And when I started this job, I, I made it a point to get to know everyone in the youth group, so I started forming these relationships. And so many of the, the students kept telling me about somebody who, this, this one gal who used to go to youth group but didn't go anymore. And then I had several adults also saying the same thing. And uh, she, was, she was beyond, she had graduated high school already. Um, and they, they kept saying to me, Greg, if, if you could just, you know, meet her and talk to her and, and interact and, and, you know, have her come back. And they kept saying, oh, she's so talented. She has such a great voice and she's an amazing musician. And if only you could get her to play music on the worship team. If, if only you could get her to become involved with the student ministry again. Um, we don't know what's happened. She's, she's just drifted away. And so I reached out to this young person, and uh, I had several interactions with her and several meetings with her. And you know, I poured out my heart and, and really just tried to love on her and, and, and get her to see that God still loves her. And in interacting, I, I even tried to get her to, to start playing music with me so I'd have uh, that as a, as a connector. And uh, I figured out pretty quickly that she really didn't want anything to do with God anymore or anything to do with church or, or such. And it broke my heart and I really didn't know what to do. And uh, you know, ultimately, I stopped interacting with her and she went her own way. Fast forward about a year and a half, uh, we started this ministry called Sanctuary and uh, interacting with, you know, all these different high school and college students. And I started working with this, this young guy named Isaac. And Isaac was a Russian Jew. And, uh, but he was also an atheist at the same time. So culturally, he was Jewish, but he was an atheist. And Isaac, how do you describe Isaac, Corey? Yeah, he's like human Google. So this is the guy who, like, if you, any conversation you have, he has a random fact about it. And he's not even making it up. I swear he must go home and Google everything and, and just file it away. So this guy, Isaac, he was, he was just this awesome, awesome guy. And so we, we all started investing in Isaac, and he came week after week after week. And I remember there was this one time uh, where he and I were talking, and uh, I said, Isaac, don't take this the wrong way, um, but, but why, why do you come every week? And Isaac wasn't really connecting with the messages, uh, so I was confused as to why, you know, if, if you're not really connecting with what we're saying, why do you come? Not that I didn't want him to come. And he said to me, Greg, this is why I come. I want what you have. And he said, I don't care if you were talking about Corvettes. If this was a car club, I would come every week. And I was blown away by that. And so that night, he actually committed his life to Christ. And uh, he started coming for a different reason after that. So praise God. Um, he is struggling now. So, um, but that's another point. <laughs> so after he committed his life to Christ, we, I started discipling him. And he brought me to his, his house uh, and I'd never been inside his house. And this, this time I decided to go in. And so I went in his house and he was living with a, a bunch of young people. 
And this house was, I mean, the best way I can describe it, it looked like a crack house. It, it was just devastated. There was no sheetrock on the walls. There was clear plastic dividing rooms. It was a mess. And there was a whole bunch of young people living there. And uh, he brought me around. He brought me to his room. He showed me his room. He had about 20 possessions total. And he was like proud of each one. And he showed me all the different things he had. And after we left his room, he pointed to a door. And he said to me, oh, that's where Dorothy lives. And she's, she and her boyfriend live here, and they, they sleep in that room. Well, that was the young girl that I was interacting with a year and a half earlier. And so she was living in this house um, with, her, with her boyfriend and, um, in this destructive lifestyle. And um, you know, it broke my heart because I own that. You know what? God put her in, in the church that I was serving at, and, uh, and she fell away. And I know I'm not the only person responsible or involved in that, but I need to own that. And I think we need to realize that this is a huge problem, that we are losing our young people to this world, that this culture is, is, is snatching our young people and they're getting wrapped up in destructive lifestyles. And, and they're killing themselves. And their relationship with God is getting destroyed. And we're closing our eyes to this. We're blind to it. And I think we're, we're blind to it because we're so busy at times with good things. We're focused on doing life and focused on uh, even, you know, coming and serving at church and uh, going to life group or journaling or, or serving at a, you know, all these different great things that we do that we've taken up as a burden. I believe we've neglected to take up this burden of going and, and, and rescuing our young people who have been stolen away. I can guarantee you that each person in this room knows at least five young people, at least five, that grew up in the church, and have walked away. And it probably started out where they had one foot in the world, one foot in the church, and then they creeped over and they had both feet in the world. And, we, and then we've just allowed it to happen. Let me read to you a study from the Barna Group. This, this is astounding. This is going to blow your mind. I didn't think it was this bad. <laughs> this is pretty bad. A recent survey conducted by the Barna Group, a leading research organization whose focus is on the relationship of faith and culture, found that less than 1% of the young adult population in the United States has a biblical worldview. 1%. That's astounding. That's shameful. For us, like as a pastor, as, as, as somebody who, who's entrusted, and as a parent even, wow. Less than 1% of the young adult population in the United States has a biblical worldview. Even more startling, the data shows that less than one half of 1%, less than one half of 1% of Christians between the ages 18 and 23 have a biblical worldview. And this is what they define as a biblical worldview. Absolute moral truths, 
The Bible is completely inerrant. Satan is a real being, not symbolic. That a person cannot earn their way into the kingdom of God through good works. That Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. And that God is the supreme creator of the heavens and the earth and reigns over the whole universe today. So there's less than 1% of all young people in our country that agree to those statements. And then in the bracket of 18 to 23, less than half of 1%. Wow. Does that, that blows my mind away. I didn't think it was that bad. That's scary. Wow. And we haven't made this our burden we get so excited about doing and going, even on missions trips. Nothing wrong with going on missions trips. Don't get me wrong. I love missions trips. But we have a mission right here. We have a serious mission right here. And God is calling us to wake up. God is calling us to awaken, like in this conference. He wants us to wake up on the inside and make it our burden. He wants us to stop hiding and start rescuing. And my fear is that we're hiding because, uh, one, we're so busy. Okay, we're, we're, we're just so consumed with things of this life. And two, we're afraid. We're afraid of this culture. Because this culture has a loud voice and it's pretty intimidating, isn't it? And this same problem was happening in a church 2,000 years ago. So this isn't new. This church in Thyatira was losing young believers. In particular, they're men. And young men. So turn me to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to look at the letter to the church of Thyatira. From this passage, we're going to see what, what God is doing about this and what he's calling us to do alongside of him. Starting in verse 18. You all there? You have Bibles? I could preach every time about bringing your Bible. Very important. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And your latter works exceed the first. So Jesus is saying, okay, you're doing all these great things. Actually, you're doing even more. You're, you're, you're growing and in, in doing all these great things. Then there's the but. And whenever you see but in one of these passages, you know it's going down, right? It says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my young servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, this is what he's going to do, or allowed to happen. I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works de deserve. But to the rest of you, 
in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, do not lay on you any other burden. This is a big one right here, this this idea of a burden. And I'm going to thread this through the message, that God wants us to be burdened for this problem that's occurring with losing our young people. This is our burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. And he who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord says to the church. God, I pray that. God, that as we work through this passage, God, that you give us ears to hear. God, that we might hear what the Spirit is saying to us. Amen? Amen. You with me? You guys are tired of this. Are you tired this morning? This is important. I want you to catch this. There we go. Come on now. Come on. So the passage starts out with a, a vivid word picture of God himself, of Jesus. And it says that, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like fire, like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. His eyes are inflamed. I remember when I was a kid, and I used to make my mom mad by, by, if I talked back and sassed. I swear, her eyes would turn from blue to green, and they'd be inflamed with fire. And was, I remember this one time, I made her so mad, she came at me with a vacuum cleaner. I was in high school, and I was a senior in high school, and I was fresh, right? So I came home, and I, I you know, I talked back. She you don't, came at me. It was one of those, you know the ones that has, like, the, the tag along with the, right? So she took that, and she's coming at me with the vacuum cleaner. So, oh, boy. Her eyes were like flames of fire. So what this, this word picture is saying, that God is all-knowing, which is the word omniscient. So he knows everything. And what he sees is, is stirring up wrath inside of him. His eyes are on fire. He, he is so angry that this is happening. He looks at this church and sees that there are those who are young in their faith that are being led astray and seduced into destructive lifestyles. And the church, who's so busy at doing good works, is doing nothing about it. They're tolerating it. And his eyes are like flames of fire, saying, don't you see this, that this is happening? And then he says, my feet are like burnished bronze. First time I read that, I'm like, like trophies? (laughs) That's a little strange. And studying this passage in this culture, I learned that Thyatira was famous for making weapons of warfare, or making swords and shields and armor, and they would make them out of burnished bronze. So what God is saying is that he's dressed up for battle, and he's ready to act. He's ready to fight against this. His feet are like burnished bronze, so he's ready to march into battle. So he sees it, he knows it's happening, and he's going to do something about it. And you know what? He wants to do something about it through us. Okay? He says, I'm omniscient. I know your works. 
I know what you're doing. I know that, and these things are good, like the good things that you're doing. I know your works, your love and faith and service, that you're coming to church on Sundays, that during the week you're doing good things and helping people out. And your patient endurance, meaning that you're living in a, in a world that, that's combative and you're, you're trusting in the Lord and you're waiting for him to, to return. Now, here's the sticky point. I think that this church was maybe too focused on the return of the Lord and they were, they were saying, you know, this world's falling apart and is going to H-E double hockey sticks. I have little kids still here, right? Oh, they, they stayed in? Yeah. And, um, and you know what? We're just going to focus on God and his return. And, and if, if the world goes that way, then you know what? So be it. I think their patient endurance turned into tolerance. I think they closed their eyes to what's happening in the world around them. I think they were so busy doing good things in their community, doing church, that they were closing their eyes to losing their young people, that they, young people were being snatched away and they weren't even seeing it. And they did nothing about it. And who was snatching them away? When the passage it says that Jezebel was snatching them away, that there was this woman Jezebel. Most scholars don't think that it, the woman was actually named Jezebel. They, it's a title. It's a, it's a type. Like calling somebody Benedict Arnold or calling somebody uh, Hitler or calling somebody something, you know, something really negative. Or it could be something positive where somebody's really good at basketball and you call them Michael Jordan or you know, something like that. But then in this case, it's really negative. So we have this individual with the title Jezebel, and, and this happens to be a female. She's recruiting others to do the same thing, and she's seducing young people to be worldly, to, uh, to blend the practices of the world with the practices of their faith, to adopt a mentality or a theology called syncretism, Syncretism is when you go religion shopping. So you're walking through the supermarket and like, oh, Buddhism. I'll put a little of that in there. Oh, a little bit of Hinduism in there. A little bit of uh, Wicca, witchcraft. I'm going to put that in my cart. A little bit of Christianity in there. And then you blend it all together. Because you have a little bit of sexual immorality. Okay, You have a little bit of eating food to sacrifice to idols. So they were picking and choosing what they wanted to believe from the world and formulating their own religion based upon that and included sexual immorality. Now, is that happening today in the church? You bet it is. Because I guarantee you there's, there's young people that we know, young adults, those in their 20s, who have claimed to practice Christianity that are probably living with their boyfriend or girlfriend, right? And... Where does that come from? I believe it comes from this culture, which is saying, oh, you need to live with a person first before you get married because you need to figure it out. That's, the, that's one of the teachings of Jezebel. And we're, not, we're, we're allowing that to happen. We're not speaking out against it. So you have these, these, young, these believers who are young in their faith. They're getting pulled away. And what is God going to do? What does he say in this passage? Well, he's, his feet are like bronze, so he's going to act. And he says, first, I gave her time to repent. So it shows the kindness and compassion of God. 
that even those who are, who are fighting against God and, and, and causing young believers to go astray, he still loves them and he's still calling them to repent. But she won't repent. And he says, behold, I will throw her into a sickbed. Now, I, be, I believe that this is just the consequence of the lifestyle that, that they're living. You know, if you go out and you start sleeping around, you're going to catch a disease. You're probably going to die, right? So destructive lifestyles are destructive lifestyles. They destroy you. They kill you. Addiction to drugs, addiction to alcohol, addiction to sex, addiction to anything that it destroys people's lives. And I think in, in God's mercy that he, he'll, he allows individuals to continue in a certain way, hoping to bring them back in repentance, but eventually it catches up with them and they, they get sick and maybe even die. So he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm calling them to repent, but my grace might get pulled back here if they don't repent. And here's what he's calling us to do. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, what you have learned, what some call the deep things of Satan, I say, do not lay on you any other burden. So he's saying that, okay, I want you to make this thing your burden. I want you to start focusing on rescuing those who have gone astray. Now, my fear is that, again, we don't do that because we're afraid. Now, if you look at the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament, Jezebel was a prophetess, and she, she worshipped Baal, who was the god of agriculture. And part of worshipping Baal involved uh, sex with, well, we have kids in here, <laughs> I can say this. So sexual immorality, we'll just say that, okay? So it involves sexual moral, immorality. And uh, she was recruiting men from her culture, and, and women as well, to her religion, and she married an Israelite king, and she systematically was killing off all of the prophets of God at that time who were resisting her. Now, there was one mighty prophet, Elijah, who was the, the prophet of prophets, all right? And there was this one event in the Bible where, where Elijah battled the prophets of Baal, and and standing up against them, um, they had this big ceremony with sacrifices, and, uh, and the prophets of Baal were calling their gods to act, and then Elijah called for his god, and, and God rained down fire from the sky, and it, and it was this amazing scene, and, and then there was a battle, and Elijah defeated hundreds of prophets of Baal that day. So he was this mighty man of God, empowered by the Spirit, doing battle, against those who are, who, who are distorting the truth, who, who, are, who are killing the prophets of God. And when Jezebel heard of what Elijah had done and how he stood up for his faith, how he stood up for God, Jezebel vowed to kill Elijah. Now, think about this. Elijah did battle with hundreds, hundreds, an army of men, and God showed up and defeated these men. And you would think that Elijah would be able to stand up against this one strong-willed woman who had a really strong voice. But rather than standing up, he went on a day's journey into the wilderness 
and he sat under a tree and he moped and he wept and he said, woe is me. What am I going to do? She's going to kill me. What? You serve the God of the universe. Didn't you just see what he did? How he fire rained down from the sky? He sat under a tree and hid. And I think that's what we do. I think we hide from this culture. I think we hide from this culture because we're afraid. They have a loud voice and it's scary. And we feel threatened. So we sit under a tree and weep. But praise be to God. When Elijah was weak, God was strong. Right? So what did, Eli- what did God do? God showed up and he ministered to Elijah, Elijah and he strengthened him. He fortified him on the inside so he could get up and he'd get back in the ring. And he could go fight for God again. And I believe that God is saying to us that I want to strengthen you. I want to fortify you on the inside. I want you to get back in the ring and start fighting this battle and take back the land. Right, Elaine? And take back our young people. Because we serve a mighty God who is able. He wants to rain fire down from the sky. We need to stop hiding. Oh, goodness. Now, if we're going to get back in the ring, okay, we need to train. Was it a fight last night? My boy lost. Oh, boy. Oh, many, well, never mind. <laughs> Squirrel. So if we're going to get back in the ring, we need to train. One of the reasons our young people are going astray is that they have questions about truth and they're not finding answers from Christians. They're finding answers from the world. Let me redo this, the rest of the study. Two studies conducted by both the Barna Group and USA Today found that nearly 75% of Christian young people leave the church after high school. One of the key reasons they do so is intellectual skepticism. This is the result of our youth not being taught the Bible in their homes or in church. Statistics show that our kids today spend an average of 30 hours per week in public schools where they are being taught ideas that are diametrically opposed to biblical truths, evolution, the acceptance of homosexuality, sex before marriage, etc. Let me push pause for a second. Christian schooling is awesome. It is. And whether you send a a child to Christian school or even you homeschool, I think that those are really effective ways. And I understand why some people send their kids to public school. And I went to a public school and I worked at a public school. I taught at a public school. Um, Please don't be offended by this, but if, if, if you allow... Babylon to educate your children, right? And they leave as a Babylonian, you shouldn't be surprised. Now, there's ways of sending your kids to a public school and still teaching them. You got to do that at home. You need to sit around the dinner table and take out your Bible and teach your kids. 
In order to do that, you have to know the Bible first. And that's part of the training. You need to firm up what you believe. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. So when your kid comes home and says, oh, you know, I want to go and I want to go live with my boyfriend. Right? And then you say, well, no, that's wrong. That's immoral. Then you say, show me in the Bible where that's wrong. And you don't have an answer for that. What does that show? Right? Because we're not doing our job. If we're going to get back in the ring, we need to train. If we're going to get back in the ring, we need to firm up what we believe. We need to know what we believe and why. And if your kid is in the public school, you need to train them up to be a, a missionary in that school. You need to build up their spiritual muscles because they're going to get bombarded by their teachers and by their peers with, the thing, with things that just aren't true, but they seem true because there's coming from ones who love them. And young people look at love and acceptance as truth. They look at a community of peers as, as what defines truth. So you need to have a relationship with them. You need to disciple them. You need to teach them the Bible. You need to, to teach them why you believe. And they need to see you living it out. Right? Yeah. And God help us to do that. Because it's hard. And I'm trying not to be judgmental. I'm just fired up about this. This is important. Okay? I'm a parent as well. Mine, mine are little still. But I'm doing the best I, best I can, and I still need to do better. You know what? Because God has entrusted them to us. They're his children, his sons and daughters, and we're stewards of them. They're in our house, and I'm the priest of my family. And guys, you need to be the priest of your family. You need to stand up a priest of God and teach them the word of God and the truths of God. And we need to turn off the television. And we need to get things right in our own lives. Okay? Let me fire it up. Woo! Okay, so God is calling us to stop hiding, to firm up what we believe, and lastly, he's calling us to start rescuing. And this passage says this. I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Now, to hold fast is not passive. It's not to cling to. It's to reach out and grab. It's like when, you, uh, when you're walking along the street and your little one bolts out into the road and you sprint over and you grab them and you pull them back and you rescue them. You hold fast to them. You need to capture them back. It's just like with Abraham when his nephew was taken captive in Sodom, what did Abraham do? He formed an army and he went and he rescued Lot who was in trouble. And then later on, when Lot was still in the world, still in Sodom, what did he do? He interceded for Lot. So he did his part and then God showed up and did his part. And he sent angels to rescue Lot. And ultimately Lot was delivered from Sodom. Because Abraham made it his burden to rescue Lot. He physically got involved like a warrior. Okay, he went to battle. He went to battle in action and in prayer. Now, if we're going to win back our young people, we need to know why they went astray in the first place. Amen? 
So why do young people go astray? I think there's three reasons. I think one, they want to be loved, but they're not finding love. And so they're turning their life over to counterfeit love, to something that looks like love, but it's not really love. So we need to love our kids radically. They need to know that we love them unconditionally, that even when we're struggling, we're still there for them. So that means we need to make time for them. It goes back to that busyness piece. If we're not spending time with our young people, then they don't feel loved. That's their love language, relationship. That's how they know they're loved. Coupled with that, young people, this is the second reason, young people want to be known. They want to be known. They want you to sit and listen to their heart. They want somebody to pour out to. And if they don't do that with you, they're going to find someone else to do it. And if you have a young daughter and guys, men, husbands, daddies, if you're not sitting and allowing your daughter to pour out and share the things of her heart with you, she's going to find another guy to do it to. And then she'll end up getting in a, a relationship far too young and far too early and will pour out her heart to that guy and will lead to a destructive lifestyle. Young people want to be known and they want us to know them. We, we get, get rid of the busyness. They're much more important than anything you could be doing in your life. Amen? And the last one, they won't admit this. They want to model their lives after somebody. They need a hero, that's right. Listen, God has made human beings to image. Fundamentally, when he formed us, he made us in the image of God. He formed us so that we would be modeled after somebody. So if you don't have God in your life, then fundamentally at the core, you model yourself after somebody else, okay? So what happens is as you grow up, you look around you at the individuals in your life and you pick and choose attributes from the people in your life and you form your identity. And then you end up saying, okay, this is who I am. It's a collection of the people you interact with. And, and you get formed and molded in some way. And often in that process, we idolize, we reflect, we assimilate to things that are ungodly. Because we don't have a godly example to base our lives after. Okay, you following me? So they need an example, a hero of what it means to live a godly life. So God is calling us to, to love on them, to spend time with them so that, they, that they're known and to give them a godly example in how we live. And in doing that, I believe that we will start to rescue back our children, our young people who have been stolen away. This is our burden. This is what we need to be focused on in life. This is huge. This might, honestly, this is the most important thing I've ever preached or my, you know, this is so big because the next generation, 1%, 1% of them, less than 1%, 18 to 23, less than a half a percent of them have a biblical worldview. Let's do something about that, right? Come on, let's stop hiding and start rescuing. Amen. If you would like to know more about Grace Capital Church, or how to get a copy of this broadcast, 
please visit us online at gccnh.com.